You are listening to the Salvation Army Disaster Radio, covering all things related to emergency management, disaster services, and the Salvation Army. Christy, visual image time. Right now, picture us at the end of a marathon, breaking that tape at the finish line. That's right, Jeff, because this is the final episode, the finish line of our epic ICS Hendecagon series, yeah, episode yeah. number 11. Wow, I'm very happy. We should have edit in some crowd noise at this point. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you know what? We've saved the best for last. This is a very special episode of our ICS and Decagon because it's specifically designed for Salvation Army leadership, including divisional commanders, divisional secretaries, and other staff officers. During a disaster, these leaders form a special group, a little bit outside the rest of the incident command structure, called a policy group. And that group supervises the incident commander and, by extension, the entire incident command team. That's right, Jeff. Because it's important to recognize that ICS operates within the Salvation Army's existing structure, a divisional commander does not give up his or her authority when a disaster happens, and the incident commander needs to remember that he or she works for that DC for as long as they are assigned to the disaster operation. Exactly. But maybe we ought to jump back for just a second. Now, I know our podcasts are so good that uh, all of our listeners has listened to every single one, probably some more than once. I mean, you know, you can't get enough of them. (laughs) But, you know, our divisional leadership is probably also pretty busy. So maybe we should summarize some of the essentials of ICS just in case somebody's coming in late. Well, first of all, remember that the incident command system is an on-site, all-hazard incident management concept that is used by both governmental and non-governmental organizations for all types and sizes of emergencies. Think of ICS as a system to structure or organize a response to the chaos of a disaster site. Yeah, and that common terminology is one of the things that really makes ICS work. Because when you're using ICS, you're not just speaking Salvation Army, you're speaking emergency responder. And so you can communicate with police, fire, uh, and other members of the response community, and that really helps tie those organizations uh, together as you respond. ICS also recognizes that there are essential tasks that must be performed to a greater or lesser degree, but on every disaster. You miss any one of these essential tasks and you start seeing holes in your operation, which typically lead to problems. Yeah, and those tasks are boiled down to nine key positions within an incident command team, each representing a key function or task that needs to be done on a disaster. Okay, so I'm going to give you a little pop quiz, Mr. Jellett. You go for it. Incident commander. Basically, that's the manager or supervisor of the incident management team, kind of like the CEO. Public information officer. The person who's going to disseminate information externally and internally. They're your media spokesperson. Liaison officer. Liaison builds connections between the Salvation Army and other disaster responders. So they're the person you might put in an emergency operations center to work with local government. Okay. Emotional and spiritual care officer. Yeah, that position is actually unique to the Salvation Army. You look at government ICS and you won't see that there, but really that's the person obviously who's going to do that pastoral care piece. Um, Not just for disaster survivors and rescue workers, but for personnel that belong to the Salvation Army as well. And safety officer? Safety is the lifeguard. Remember my swimming suit analogy? Mm -hmm. Uh, They're the person that's going to make sure that nothing dangerous happens on the incident. Operations chief. Yeah, probably the biggest section in the entire ICS structure. Operations is what you do. All your direct services, whether it's canteening, sheltering, disaster social service work, is under operations. Probably the biggest function on any incident command team. 
logistics chief. Ah, logistics. If you're a shopper, you want to be in the logistics section because they are the folks that get stuff and bring it in to support what operations is doing. Finance and administration chief. Uh, The bean counters. (laughs) (laughs) But they do more than just financial work, although they do that, pay the bills, make sure that vouchers are processed. More importantly, they're all about personnel. They're the folks who are going to recruit people in, make sure they have a place to stay each night, and uh, assign people to the different aspects of the operation. And last but not least, the planning chief. Yeah, while everybody else is focused on today, planning chiefs are looking at tomorrow. Where do we go from here? How do we keep the operation moving forward? So with an incident command team, they're going to be, if if we remember from our teachings, on site. They are located near the disaster impact area. With the policy group, are they just in a building right next door, or where are they located, yeah. Jeff? By comparison, the policy group is probably quite a bit away from the disaster site. Um, since they're composed of the people who run the Salvation Army 365 days a year, they're probably where they do business every day, maybe at a divisional headquarters um, or in a small disaster, an area command. Um, and it's important to remember that the policy group um, really looks a lot like your divisional finance board, your divisional command your divisional secretary, because these are the people who set policy for the Salvation Army day-to-day. That doesn't change during a disaster, but they take on a little bit different aspect because now they're setting policy for a very specific event, an emergency operation. And ICS can expand and contract, and so can the policy group. If that disaster is a very large incident, you may want to add a a development person or a social services person to your policy group to bring on an extra stakeholder. And at the same time, if it's a smaller disaster, it may just be the divisional secretary who acts as the policy. Absolutely. If it's a small tornado, the divisional commander might not want to convene a group of five or six people every time a decision may need to be made. He may say to the the DS, for example, you handle this. You know, as long as you don't spend over X amount of dollars and it doesn't grow past five canteens, there's no reason you and the incident commander can't work together to make decisions. Okay, Christy, so you quizzed me on all those ICS positions. Now I have the big question for you. What is the most important responsibility of the policy group. I have been mentored well by you, Jeff. It is to appoint a qualified incident commander. You learn this in many of our EDS training classes. (laughs) Absolutely. And, And the other analogy I always use is about the captain of the plane. The policy group needs to make sure that they've got a qualified captain to pilot their incident command airplane. And really, the key factor there is experience. Um, the other thing we have to remember is that, you know, disasters begin locally. And so when a disaster starts, there's probably a core officer or local salvationist who assumes the role of the incident commander because they're there. The only people who can remove that person is that policy group. So a divisional commander has a choice to make and say, well, this disaster started in that jurisdiction. But you know, the guy there, he's a good guy, but he doesn't have a lot of disaster experience. If we want to make sure this operation continues in the right direction, I better send somebody more experienced in and have them assume command. And the DC or the policy group has a responsibility to let the guy on the ground know, hey, your replacement is coming in. Here's why I've made that decision. So once you have an incident commander in place, then the policy group must provide the incident commander with three things clear authority, direction, and the support necessary to accomplish the objectives of the disaster relief mission. So let's take clear authority first. Yeah, I mean, that's very simple. 
um, the policy group has to convey to the incident commander what are the lines you can cross and which boundaries do you have. For example, what's my jurisdictional boundary? Do I just have the particular city that's affected or do I have, do I have 25 counties from one end of the coast to the other? Um, you know, So the incident commander knows what kind of box they're in and can operate within the scope of work that the policy group has laid out. And then direction? Direction is where does you want the incident commander to take this operation? What's your vision for the way the relief effort should look like? For example, one way to look at it might be, you know what? This is a huge disaster. We're going to feed. We're going to do emergency assistance work. And then we're going to get right into long-term recovery. We're not leaving for a very long time. That's one type of direction. On the other hand, it could be a lot smaller because maybe the disaster isn't raising a lot of money. So we may have to have direction of, look, all we can afford to do is get in there, feed, and then we really have to shut this down two or three weeks in because we just don't have the resources to sustain a long-term recovery operation. Now, support is is a, a vague a vague word and concept. So what does it mean by supporting your incident commander? Yeah, support necessary to accomplish the mission is really three things. It's people. Equipment, money, and maybe there's a fourth, even resources. You know, you can say to an incident commander, you have complete authority over this disaster operation. You have 25 counties there. So you got that clear authority piece. Then you tell them, and I want you to go into that community that's been affected and start with feeding. And I don't want you to leave until that town is completely rebuilt from the ground up. That's direction. And in order to do that, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you two people, $100, and one broken down canteen. That's not the support necessary to accomplish the mission. So when you set that vision, you have to make sure you've got the other resources in play in order to make that vision a reality. And that's a great picture of how the policy group is relating to the incident commander. But I want to make sure that everyone remembers and doesn't forget the core officer. Because that core officer, as we all know, was there before the disaster hit. He's going to be there afterwards, after the incident commander leaves and and takes his team with him. And so you want to incorporate the core officer as that third rung, if you will, in the discussion when, when you're deciding what's going to happen. Yeah, the policy needs to treat... The IC and the core officer equally, they both have the right to come to that policy group and say, here's what's going on and here how it, how it impacts me. You know, we always like to look at where these things go wrong. So I think there are a couple things that I'd like to share about um, things that may not always work out right. And I think the simplest one is this, is to remember something you pointed out. Incident command, the incident commander is on scene at the disaster area. Um, if you're a member of the policy group, you shouldn't really have that title of incident commander, particularly if you're way back at divisional headquarters. You know, it, it's not really an authority piece or a, or, or something to fight over. Um, they're just different roles. And really, if you're way back at, at DHQ making those broader decisions, your policy group. The IC is the person on site doing the kind of micromanagement of how things um, actually go out at the end of every day. Yeah, and in the same way, the incident commander needs to be in the incident command at least most of his time so he can answer questions and make those decisions for the operations chief and logistics chief and so on and so forth. And we talked about that policy group could be multiple people. Could be the DC divisional secretary, finance secretary, could be some experts like a development director or a social services person. But here's the key you can expand that policy group to bring all the techno expertise you need to bear, but you have to maintain unity of command. 
And unity of command is everybody reports to one supervisor. So you don't want every member of the policy group calling that poor IC. So the DC tells them to do this. Then five seconds later, he gets a phone call from the DS to do this. And five seconds after that, there's a call from the finance secretary. The policy group should identify one member of that team to be their direct interface with the incident commander. So if the DS, for example, he consolidates all those opinions, makes one call to the incident commander and says, here's your marching orders. Here are the policy decisions we made. And once you've established that one person that's going to be your direct connect, he needs to make regular scheduled communication between the IC and himself or herself. If that person is the, is the one to, to communicate with the IC, then there are daily conversations over budget, just variety of issues, direction of the operation, and those, those paths of communication need to stay open. Yeah, don't put your disaster operation on autopilot. You know, this has to be a continuing conversation. And policy group, you need to tell your IC, I want to know about controversial issues because I don't want to find out about that something bizarre has happened by reading it in the newspaper. Give me the heads up so we can work together to address those issues. And when you're making a major policy shift, for example, the day you're going to shut down mobile feeding and move over maybe to primarily disaster social services, those are mile markers. We should be having a conversation about when those transitions occur. Jeff, tell us about Minute 14. (laughs) Well, you know, if you want more and you're on that policy group level, there really are two Salvation Army policies you need to know. One is Minute 14, which is kind of an overview of how disaster services operates, um, what the territory is responsible for, the division, um, and how they interact. So you need to know Minute 14, and then you also need to know Policy 35, which is all about how disasters are funded, money is broken up. Um, if you're sitting at any cabinet-level position, those are two documents you want to go ahead and take out immediately um, when the disaster occurs. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and the best part about it is this pretty much wraps up our entire ICS and Decagon series. We have reached the end. We've gone through our opening segment, all nine positions, and down through the policy group. So it's a milestone. Yes, and not only that, our viewers should know that we have surpassed 10,000 total downloads for our entire Salvation Army Disaster Radio to date. Yeah, that is phenomenal. And it's not just me clicking on the same episodes over and over again. (laughs) Just Um, you and your wife and daughter. That's right. (laughs) Um, But it certainly has been gratifying, and we do hope they're helpful. And uh, now's a good time to send us your comments as we move into our next year, because we do already have our next teaching session segment coming up. You want to give them a preview of what they can expect next year? Well, we're going to call it the Magnificent Seven, and we're talking about seven functions that happen on the disaster site, whether it be social services or mass care. It's it's going to be a great teaching series, and of course, we'll have the additional field reports whenever something happens. If you're a core officer and you're responding to a disaster incident and, and you want to give us a field report, please give us a call or send us a message. Yeah, stick with us in 2011, and thanks for listening. Listening. You know, I'll let you know a secret. Actually, the name Magnificent Seven only came because Christy's a big fan of Gladiator movies. Yes, me and Spartacus <laughs> hanging on my wall. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to Disaster Radio. We welcome your questions or comments. Send us an email at disasterradio at uss.salvationarmy.org. And remember, it's easy to support the Salvation Army. To donate time, money, or materials, Go to www.salvationarmyusa.org or simply call 1-800-SAL-ARMY.